Lord, we just thank you this morning that um, we can gather. We thank you, Lord, for freedom. Thank you, God, for the ability to gather publicly and to be able to declare uh, the truth of the gospel, to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. And uh, Lord, we don't want to not value that. And so we just give you thanks for that privilege here this morning, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word, that you'd give us eyes to see, that you would open the eyes and the ears of our heart. Lord, we pray, uh, as Paul did for the Ephesians, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. That's what we want, Lord. We want to know you better. And so help us to see the wonderful things that are in your word. And we just pray for your spirit's anointing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Right on, so we're diving back in here to this prophetic message that Jesus gave. I've been telling you the last couple of times you've been in Matthew 24 here that, that this message is often called the Olivet Discourse. And it's a prophetic message that Jesus gave that was the bookend on his ministry just before the cross. And so uh, we recall that, um, just to wind us back here a little bit as we set the stage to jump back in this morning, we recall that there were two questions from the disciples that framed the teaching of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Jesus told them about the destruction of the temple that was coming, and they asked Jesus, uh, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the close and the close of the end of the age? And so Jesus as we've seen, he doesn't directly answer the first question, when will these things be? But what he does through Matthew chapter 24 is just share signs, share markers of the age, things that help us get a sense of where we are on God's time clock. Now, a couple things that I would just remind you of as we jump back in here from our previous week's studies in Matthew 24 uh, the first one is this, is to remind you that this is a topical message from Jesus. It's not chronological. So we can't take this, this message from Matthew 24 and turn it into a timeline. Jesus is kind of topically moving around the subject of end time prophecies. And he shares with his disciples the things that they can look for. And so I also want to remind us uh, of this truth as well, that that as we jump back in here into this teaching, that when Jesus speaks of the last days, uh, we have to be careful not to lump together uh, some of the events into one event. Like when we speak of the rapture of the church and the end of days or the second coming of Christ, those are two separate things in the mind of the Bible. And often we want to pull them together as, as uh, one event. And so what, much of what Jesus teaches here in Matthew 24 really doesn't have to do with the church in many ways, doesn't have to do with the rapture of the church because Matthew's gospel is a gospel to, uh, that is written to the Jewish people, to Israel, primarily with Israel in mind as God's covenant people. But that said, this part that we're going to hit of Matthew chapter 24 today, I think we can clearly see uh, overtones in, of, of the rapture here. And so I mean, primarily, Matthew 24 is directed towards the children of Israel and their experience during the tribulation that will culminate in the second coming of Christ. And so the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus are two different things. Uh, Christ will come for his church, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and the church that serves as salt and light for the kingdom of God in this world will be removed. Second uh, Thessalonians tells us about the fact that the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain evil in that day, that men will be able to pursue every inclination and the wicked desires of their, of their hearts. And so, you know, one of the things we have to recognize about the day and the age in which we live is that we live during a time when the Holy Spirit is still restraining wickedness. He's restraining uh, the evil inclinations of the human heart. He's still pricking those who don't know Jesus. But when the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air, the Holy Spirit will cease to restrain evil. And men will do as they see fit, and the Lord will focus his attention back on the nation of Israel. And what we talked about last week, Daniel's final period of seven 
years that are ordained for the children of Israel and the city of Jerusalem will begin, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. And so last week when we were moving through the middle part of Matthew chapter 24, uh, we were kind of giving most of our attention to what happens halfway through the tribulation. We were talking about uh, the man of sin, the Antichrist, uh, the son of destruction, who will commit the abomination of desolation. And uh, we had a lot of fun talking about that in our home group this week. It was, it was good. And, um, and this Antichrist will demand the worship of the world and the tribulation will then ramp up for the Jews to a new level. And we talked about this last week. We believe they'll flee to the ancient city of Petra where they will find shelter and ultimately uh, Jesus will save them. And so if we were to break this chapter down, let's just get our frame of reference again. If we were to break this chapter down topically in the things that Jesus has talked about, he, verse 1 and 2, Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that the Romans fulfilled in 70 AD. Verses 3 to 8, Jesus talked about general conditions in the earth during the last days. We've talked about how the last days span from the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost till today. Last days span this period of 2,000 years already. They're days of deception. So much deception, spiritual deception in our world. They're days of destruction and days of disaster, Jesus said. Then we looked at verses 9 through 14 where Jesus generally described the second half, I would say, of the tribulation. And then last week, we dove a little bit deeper into the subject of the tribulation in verses 15 through 28, and we talked about the abomination of desolation all the way to the appearing of Christ at the end of the great tribulation. And so where we left off was kind of at verse 27 and 28. It actually says this in verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so as Jesus just begins to button up the picture of the tribulation for his disciples, he tells them about his second coming and he says it's going to be sudden. It's going to come on the earth like a lightning strike. It's, it's going to be obvious. And so I guess I, I just thought maybe for this morning, you know, I guess Bible prophecy, right? This is one of these things that we can battle about quite a bit. We can, you know, not everyone agrees, but I, I wanted to give you maybe a, a quick summary of what I think are pretty believable order of events in the last days. And it's going to come up on the screen. And so we'll just buzz it through here. We'll go pretty quick. There it is. I told Blake, you know, what was with the bullets? I said, number it. So we had a fight this morning. No, just kidding. I quit. Yeah, he quit. <laughs> And apparently he won because there's still bullets up there. So number one, <laughs> no, it's awesome. The church is raptured. We see that. Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 15, uh, or uh, 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We believe that that is one of, that is the event that is so crucial to uh, the starting of the tribulation. And then, uh, there will be a, a leader of a revived version of the Roman Empire that's going to step in and make a seven-year peace treaty with the nation of Israel and bring peace to the Middle East. We talked about this last week after three and a half years. That leader, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, says he's going to break that agreement. He's going to set up on a wing of the temple the abomination that causes desolation. And when he commits the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist is going to begin to uh, control the world and he's going to force the world to worship him and to obey him. And meanwhile, the tribulation period upon the earth will just ramp up, Matthew 24, verse 21. And then we see in, in, this, in the scripture in Zechariah 12, Revelation 13, Revelation 19, the nations of the world will gather towards the end of the tribulation to to battle at Armageddon, to fight the Antichrist, and to fight Israel. But something's going to happen at that gathering. There's going to be a sign in the heavens of the second coming of Jesus. And they're all going to rally together and come together as an army and unite to fight Jesus. And then he'll return to the earth 
defeat his enemies. He's going to be received by the Jewish people as their Messiah. And he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. That's a, that's a really fast overview. But it gives us a little bit of a sense here as we're going to move through. And so if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, you're like, what? If you've been here, well, then, you know, you're in good shape. You could always go check out the messages online from the past weeks. But Jesus says this in verse 27, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, verse 28 of Matthew chapter 24. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That is a reference to the carnage of what will happen in the valley of Megiddo at the battle of Armageddon that will result in the second coming. And so, just a quick, quick picture, but um, one of the verses that I found just to be so, so encouraging as we were looking at these texts is that one from Amos chapter 3, verse 7 that says this, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And we remember this, that as God's people, as his church, as the redeemed of the Lord, we've been welcomed as the church into the inner circle. You know, welcomed into the family of God where the mysteries of God become for us an open secret. We, we talked about this last week. We're in, we saw it in Matthew chapter 24 where we're told to understand these things. In Daniel chapter 9 where we're told know and understand these things. And the purpose of prophecy is to bring us into the family secret, so to, so to speak. Not to scare us, but to prepare us. And so as we dive in here this morning, uh, our text, again, it's, it's topical from Jesus. It's not chronological. And Jesus takes us to the end of the tribulation. He's just told them, I'll come back. It'll be like lightning where the, where the vultures are, wherever the corpses are, the vultures will gather. And then he begins to tell signs about the signs with which he will return. So check it out in verse 29. It says this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus' Jesus return is going to come with a great sign from heaven. This is, it's just hard to fathom this. Besides in the, the, the sun, it will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from Heaven, there's going to be a, a shaking in the heavens and the earth is going to, those, those who are here on the earth are going to see these things and there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and it says that the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man on the clouds coming with great power and glory. Zechariah chapter 13 tells us about when the nations mourn, specifically about when the nation of Israel mourns, they'll look at Jesus, they'll see him at his coming, and they'll say, where did you receive these wounds? They'll, they'll see the wounds, the scars on his nail-pierced hands, and they'll say, where did you receive these wounds? And he will answer, I received these wounds in the house of my friends. And all of Israel will mourn as they look on the one whom they have pierced, and they will receive him as their Messiah. Those who bought into the lies of the world, those who, were, who bought in or were duped by Satan, for them it will be too late. The truth will dawn on them. The Bible, the word of God that we despise, the word of God that was proclaimed to us and that we did not listen to was right all along. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't spiritual allegories. It was literal actualities. The carpenter is the conqueror, and his glory is unveiled. Verse 31, Jesus says, He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The angels will gather the elect. So which elect are we talking about here? Well, I believe it's the Jews. The topic is Israel. The topic is 
the Jewish nation. You know, we've, we've yapped about this a little bit in the last few weeks, that in 1948, something happened that has never happened before in the history of the world. A nation was reborn. And the ingathering of the exiles of Israel is still something that is, that is not complete. You know, statistically, there's, there's more Jews, a lot more Jews, at least twice as many living outside the land of Israel than those that are in Israel. They're spread out throughout all, all, all the world. And that which has happened so far, the gathering of Israel back to, to the, the land, the promised land, has been done and accomplished uh, while they are in unbelief. They're a Christ-rejecting nation. They, they reject Jesus as the Messiah. They're still the fruitless fig tree. Uh, but they're putting forth end-time leaves. We're going to see that in this text. But unfortunately, it's not in anticipation of Christ's return. It's in anticipation of the Antichrist and his coming and his ruin. But at the second coming of Jesus, the sound of the trumpet will be blown and the regathering of Israel will be complete and they will be grafted back in. And so Jesus actually points us here in this text to, to the fig tree, to Israel as one of the signs pointing to his coming at the end of the age. Israel is the fig tree. We've been seeing this through Matthew's gospel. Check out verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches... As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now the fig tree is a picture of the picture of the nation of Israel. They're, they're represented in scripture by the vine, by the fig tree, and by the olive tree. The fig tree is the picture of their fruitlessness, their unbelief. You may remember that it was this same week, maybe the day before, or maybe even the very day of this conversation that Jesus had walked from Bethany in Matthew chapter 21 to the city, towards Jerusalem, and he had uh, cursed the fig tree along the path in Matthew 21. He came, he saw this fig tree standing by the roadside, and it had all these leaves on it, and he went to it uh, looking for fruit. And as he searched this tree that had all the outward appearances of health, upon inspection, Jesus found that it had no fruit. And so when, G you know, I remind you just when Jesus came into the temple on Palm Sunday, he, he found that the, the house that was called, his house that was called to, be, called to be a house of prayer, he said, was a den of robbers. When he came looking for faith, he was met with unbelief. And so symbolically along the roadway, Jesus cursed the fig tree in front of his disciples as he was cursing the nation of Israel for its fruitlessness and the, and the tree withered from its roots. Because they were a fruitless nation, Israel, in their rejection of Christ. And now Jesus tells his disciples as he's telling them about signs of his second coming. He says this, that the fig tree will serve as a sign for recognizing the season. The budding tree indicates, Jesus said, that summer is near. The fig tree Israel is a sign that the time of the rapture, the time of the church's removal is near because the time of the second coming is near. But here's the thing. Again, you remember that the fig trees, the fig tree, here's the thing about fig trees, that the fruit comes first. We got talking about this at Boomer's Brunch the other day. That, that the fruit begins to appear on the branches of the tree before the leaves come. That's one of the ways... God's designed a, a fig tree. And so when a fig tree has leaves, it means that it should have fruit. And the fig tree that Jesus cursed was a tree that had all the leaves, all the appearances of, of being fruitful, but it, it had no fruit. 
And it's interesting here that the fruitless fig tree that died by the Creator's curse will come back to life. Jesus says, what you'll see on the tree is leaves. He doesn't say that you'll find fruit. He doesn't say that there'll be faith. He doesn't say that there will be belief. The tree again will, again will have an abundance of leaves, but not fruit. Leaves. And Jesus is telling us that the reconstitution of the nation of Israel will not be done in faith. Israel will still reject Jesus. And we see that today as we look upon them as a nation of people. You know, Luke's gospel actually tells us another detail, which I think is very interesting. I want to share it with you this morning. It's Luke 21, verse 29. It's going to come up on the screen. It says this, speaking of the same time, it says, And Jesus and he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. All the trees. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. The other trees, therefore, have to represent other nations of the world. And so Jesus says, you, you look at Israel, but then you need to look at all the other trees too and see what's going on. I, I, I read something in my study in, in preparation for this that I thought was really interesting. Warren Wiersbe said this, and you should listen to this because this fits our day. He said this, and he wrote this quite a few years ago. He said, perhaps our Lord was suggesting that increased nationalism would be one of the signs of the end times. Increased nationalism as a sign of the end of times. And like I said, Wiersbe didn't write that recently. He wrote that quite a while back. And of course, we're seeing that in many nations today, aren't we? The increased attitudes of nationalism. Many people, you know, freaking out about who's in charge down in America now with President Trump. But what's interesting is that in the midst of all of this, there is a rise in American nationalism. There are many countries in the world that seem to be experiencing the same spike of a new patriotism and nationalism and they're advocating for a political independence and kind of rejecting this globalist worldview. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21 verse 28 also on your screen. He said this, Now when these things begin to take place. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. When these things begin to take place. That means this. It means the sign doesn't have to have a full-blown fulfillment. It just has to start. It just has to start and we should straighten up and begin to watch because our redemption is drawing nearer. Woohoo is right. You know what? I say this. Let people freak out about Trump. Let them freak out. As Christians, we should see the increased sign of nationalism as a sign that our redemption is drawing nearer. You know, last night, I, I, like, to, uh, I like to read Israeli news, and so I'm often checking it out almost daily. I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on. And so last night, I clicked. Uh, you know, they're... They're like 12 hours ahead of us so getting Sunday's news on Saturday night. And right away, one of the headlines I read was this. It said this. Yes, Marine Le Pen could win France. The same forces that led to, to the Brexit vote in Britain and Donald Trump's victory in the United States could carry the far-right firebrand to power. That's France. We know that there's a nationalistic movement happening in, Ger- in Germany. It's, it's moving all throughout Europe. And so I love the prophecy that we read in Luke. You look to the fig tree, but also look to the other trees. Our redemption is drawing near. And so in Matthew 24, verse 34, Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says that this generation, speaking of the generation that observes these things, he says, it will not pass away. Now, I believe that means a literal generation. The question is, how long is a generation? 
That's always the question, right, when we're talking about Bible prophecy. Like, how long is a generation? You know, I think Jesus chose that express, expression, this generation will not pass away, because it's, it's an expression that's, like, flexible. It, like, has some elasticity to it. It's like, we can't quite define it. We're not totally sure. You know, some say a generation is 25 years. Some say a generation is 40 years. Some argue that a generation is actually upwards of 100 years. A generation could, could stretch from your birth till your death. That's your generation. You think about what the scripture tells us about David. It says David served God's purpose in his generation and then he died. To me, that means that speaks of the entirety of David's life. Who lived, I don't know, into his 80s or something. And so a generation can refer to a relatively brief period or it could refer to the length of an entire life. Now, which is interesting because the nation of Israel is approaching 70 years since its rebirth. That's approaching a lifespan, right? So we can't, you know, here's the thing. We can't draw hard, fast lines around the definition of a generation. And just think when we say we're going to have boomer's brunch, nobody knows what the heck that means. Around CTK, it's like, well, am I a boomer? Am I not a boomer? I'm like, I don't know. None of us know where the generation starts or ends. It's just our senior's lunch, okay? Just sounds kind of lame to call it senior's lunch. It's boomer's brunch. Everyone's looking for a definition. And either way, Jesus says you have to look at the signs. You have to look at the fig tree. You have to look at all the trees. And they point to the fact that we are living in the generation in all of its elasticity. Jesus actually says in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. So we take the yardstick of a generation in its elasticity and its nature. And, and, and Jesus says this, I'm going to just guard you from fixing dates. You don't get to set a date. You know, that was all the rage in the 80s. Why? Because, you know, the nation of Israel was born in 48 and 40 years takes you to 88. And so, you know, I remember when I was a kid, there was a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Anybody remember that? I remember hearing about that. It had a sequel. 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1989. <laughs> but Jesus says this, no one knows the day or the hour. He says, not the angels. He says, I don't know. I'm the son of God. I don't know. Only the Father knows. The Father only. And this is one of the reasons why I think we can safely say that this, this is a topical message because as Jesus leaves this generation kind of elastic, he begins to move the conversation towards the rapture of the church because that's important in the midst of everything that he's talking about. You know, the rapture is an undated event. But actually, we could say this. The second coming of Christ is a dated event. The rapture is undated, but the second coming of Christ is very much dated. Jews who are living during those days of the tribulation are told, three and a half years through a seven-year agreement, the Antichrist will break that agreement, and three and a half years later, Jesus will come. You say, yeah, but that's not a date. Look at the Bible gets so specific in, in Revelation chapter 11 so as to count it by days. It says, from the abomination to des of desolation, 1260 days later, it will happen. That's the lunar calendar. Three and a half years. See, the Lord never sets dates for his church because his church, we're, we're a heavenly people. We're a people that, you know, we're rooted in eternity. Eternity is our home. Heaven is our home. But Israel, they're the Lord's earthly covenant people. And God gives them dates. Think about it. Abraham, your descendants will be in Egypt for 400 years and then I'll lead them out into the promised land. Moses, you guys sinned against me. This generation, 40 years, is going to wander. And when everybody's gone, we'll go in. He told the Babylonian exiles that the exile would last 
70 years through the prophet Jeremiah. We talked about this last week. Daniel saw it. He knew it. Daniel was told, the decree will go out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and seven sevens will pass. And then 62 seven. And you have fun trying to navigate that in your home group this week. But he gave a date and he said, then the prince will come and he will be cut off. Speaking of the Messiah. Then Daniel was told by the angel Gabriel, there will be one final seven. Halfway through, the prince will set up the abomination that causes desolation and then the end will come. Look, God sets dates. Absolutely, God sets dates. But by no means is there a date set for the rapture of the church. We're to look at the season. We're to look around and see the fig tree and all the trees And as I look around the season in which we live, it's clear. Church, it's clear. The summer's near. The time is drawing nigh. The time of our departure is coming. Look what Jesus says in verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You know, in the account of Noah in our, in our Bibles in Genesis, the, during, during his days, during his time, there, there was a moral culture that was, had just collapsed. And we live in a day and age like that where, where morality is just like, it's, it's just changing faster than I can keep up. <laughs> it makes me feel old or something. I don't know, maybe I'm just getting old. I looked in the, in the mirror this morning, there were a lot more gray hairs. But Jesus, Jesus says the moral culture of Noah's day in your day will serve as a sign when you see those sorts of things. You know, I love that Jesus points us to Noah and to the flood because Jesus believed in a historical, literal flood. You know, elsewhere, Jesus says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights, so I will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Because Jesus believed in a historical, literal interpretation of Jonah. It wasn't a spiritual allegory. It was truth. You know, I think this, when someone, when someone actually attacks the flood account, or they attack the story of Jonah and the whale, and they try and take biblical accounts and reduce it to allegory, do you know that it's actually not an attack on Noah or on Jonah? It's an attack on Jesus. It's an attack on his deity. It's an attack on him as the son of God because he believed in the flood account. He believed in Jonah and the whale. He endorsed those stories. He put literal interpretation to them and anything else is an attack on the deity of Jesus. And so Jesus is this, so were the days, or so as in the days of Noah, so will be in this time. So the question is this, What was it like in the days of Noah? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 38. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The conditions of the earth during the days of Noah parallel much of what we're seeing today, the time before the rapture of the church. J.B. Phillips said this, he said, Noah lived in a pornographic society, a perverted society. Those are hallmarks of our day. I mean, Yapin, you know, is away with the, the men in Calgary, and uh, the theme of our weekend was purity, power, and presence, and we were looking, we were doing a study on Hezekiah and looking at the purity of his life. But just in, in my studies, some of the stuff I came across, you know that, that 70% of men in the church are regularly click, click, click. And that's the church. I'm not like saying that as a judgment. I'm just saying that's like the truth. And so what is it outside the church? We live in a, in a culture that is given over to pornography, a perverted society, Marks of Noah's time included spiritual decline. We see that. It's like 
It's like not everything that sa- that's not everyone who says they're of the church is of the church. Not everyone who professes Christ is of is of Christ. There's social dilemmas going on. There's like depravity. It's like shameless. Sometimes I like I don't I was in the city the other day and talked to someone and my wife and I walked away and said, were we talking to a man or a woman? We didn't know. I, I mean I'm not I'm just telling you, it's like shameless depravity. Noah's day was a day of, you know, scientific development, you might say. There was all sorts of changes happening. Some people were devoted, but some were spiritually deluded. In fact, there was a strong delusion on that, on that culture during the day of Noah because they were caught by surprise. There's Noah, hammer, hammer, hammer for how many years? I can't even remember. Maybe someone can tell me. How many years did it take him to build the ark? 120. I wanted to say it was 120. So 120 years, he was a preacher of righteousness before his culture building an ark. It had never rained before. Bible says that the earth was watered with springs that would come up out of the ground. It had never rained. And he's saying, there's going to be a rain. Rain's coming. And so Jesus says that, that Noah's culture was unaware that they just had the blinders on, that there was this delusion over them until the flood came over them and swept them all away. And so it will be at the coming of Jesus. You know, you think about our culture. You're just deluded with this secular humanistic outlook. I think about North America. We're just, we live in this, with this level of materialism that's, that's gross. And Noah's world was without excuse. Like I said, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Day after day, laboring and building and working on this ark and preaching to a careless world that the rain, the flood was coming and they ignored him. The common interests of life, eating and drinking and getting married, those are all good things. It's good to eat. You got to eat. You know, it's good to be married. I mean, that's not even happening in our, in our culture. But Noah's generation and Noah's generation, they gave up what was best for what was just good enough. They settled for the good. And the warning to us is that we would fall into the same trap, you know, absorbed with the pursuits of this life. Forgetful that Jesus is coming and we give up the best of the kingdom for just a life that's good enough. And so Jesus says it it will be like that at the coming of the Son of Man. The days prior to the Lord's return for the church, there'll be the same careless attention to the teaching of the Word of God. There'll be careless attention given to fulfilled prophecy. You know, just in the last number of weeks, I'm just blown away as I've been studying on this and some of the things that we've talked about the way God is fulfilling prophecy right in our day and time. And, we're, and we, the church, have a little grasp on it, but the world is totally blind to biblical prophecy being fulfilled. Judgment was looming in the days of Noah, and it's looming in our day today. You know, it's interesting in verse 39 there, that word that is translated swept away in your ESV version, if you have that, it says that they were swept by the flood. It's a Greek word, uh, arrow. It means to be taken away with violence. Swept away in a flood, just caught up. But in the verses to come, as Jesus begins to talk about one being left and one being taken, he, he begins to use a different Greek word for describing what's going on. Because he begins to speak of the rapture. And the Greek, the Greek word he uses, and I never feel like I can say these right, but paralumbano, which means to be taken. And it's used three times in the Gospels outside of the context of this passage. Twice in Matthew's Gospel and then once in John's. I'm going to bring them up on the screen for you. The first time is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. It says this, speaking of Joseph and his 
marriage to Mary, it said, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That word take is the same one that we're about to start seeing here. The second time is in Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus uh, takes uh, Peter and, and John and James up the Mount of Transfiguration to see him transform before their eyes. And it says this, that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up a mountain by themselves. He took them, Paralambano. And then John 14, 3, the third example of this from the Gospels. Jesus said this, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to myself that you may be where I am also. There's a pattern when the word of God uses this word. And the pattern is this, that Jesus is not talking about judgment. Jesus is not talking about punishment. Jesus is not talking about eternal damnation or being swept in a flood. He's talking about a bride. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary. He's talking about glory. Come up the mountain and see me transform before your eyes. He's talking about heaven. I will come and I will take you to be where I am. In other words, in our text this morning, he's talking about the rapture. Come, my bride, see my glory and come to heaven. Let's check it out. Verse 40. Jesus said this. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. It means to be taken in tight, close. Para means beside. Paramedic. A medic comes beside you. I, I'm going to come beside you and I'm going to take you to be where I am. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Up on the screen, it says this. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Speaking of the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by his appearance of coming. Look at Jesus is going to, Remove the church, Paralambano. We're going to, we're his bride. He's going to take us to be with him and the tribulation will begin. And during that time, as Paul, Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians in this text here, the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain. He will not restrain evil. The church will no longer be here. The man of lawlessness cannot be revealed, Paul tells us, until Christ comes for his church. And Jesus said, when that happens, one will be taken, one will be left. And so here's the application in verse 40, 42. Check it out. Therefore, the application, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We're warned, stay awake. Watch. The, the rapture is an undated event. We'll only recognize the season because we do not know the day or the hour at which he is coming. We just have all these signs. The fig tree, the trees, Noah's day and age, all of these before mentioned things. Jesus says in verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Verse 44, Jesus repeats the application. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Simple application, stay awake. Be ready. That's, a, that's our job as, as the church. And Jesus 
continues on. He begins to contrast the two types of servant, the one that's left and the one that's taken. Those that are faithful and wise and those that he calls are wicked servants. <laughs> wise and faithful are first. Look at verse 45. Who then is the wise, the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food, give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The faithful and wise servant we see. Well, what is faithfulness? What is, what is wisdom in the day in which we live? Jesus says it's this to be out busy about the work of the kingdom. Diligently fulfilling whatever task the Lord has given you. You know, all our tasks are different. They're all different. All, 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 whatever assignment, mission Jesus has given you, they're different, but we're serving the, comfort, the purpose of the kingdom. To be about the work that God has given us. And Jesus says that servant that is about that work is blessed. It's happy. Happy. You know, just thinking about that, I just think, man, there's so, many, there's so many Christians. Often I pray for our church that there would be joy. That there would be joy. The word blessed means happy. And I just kind of had a thought here. So just as I was teaching that there are many Christians who aren't happy. There's no joy. There's no joy for them in serving Jesus. And I think this text is a good warning. If you don't have any joy in your walk with Jesus, then this is a good point just to, to reference and say, am I about the work of the kingdom and what has God called me to do? And Jesus said that servant that is about the work of the kingdom, he's, he's blessed. He's guaranteed reward when the master comes. He'll be made a ruler in the age to come. That's what Jesus said. But then Jesus speaks of the wicked servant, verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wicked servant Jesus speaks of here. This man proves that he's, that he's no servant of Christ at all, that he has a depraved nature. No conviction about the coming of the Lord. No conviction about the second coming. He abuses his authority. Those whom God has put under his authority takes advantage of them. He finds his fellowship, Jesus says, with, in the company of drunkards. He says, that man will be found completely, completely surprised at the coming of the Lord. And Jesus says, he'll be sent to the place of the hypocrite where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, you know, we, we, we come to the, the end here of Matthew chapter 24. We're, we're going to move on in the weeks to come into the parables of the end of the age. Jesus is going to just continue on in this same message, but we kind of come to the end of this topical teaching of Matthew chapter 24. And I just, I don't know, it wakes me up. I don't know about you guys. I hope it does. That his coming is near. I, we, we look at the signs and we have to be awake. We have to be ready. The application of Matthew 24 is this. Jesus' coming is near. Stay awake and be ready. And I pray for us this morning that we, that we would be a people who are found to be faithful and wise at the coming of the Lord. Don't you want to be counted amongst that group? Absolutely. And so this morning, I just want to pray for us. And as I was thinking about this text, I wanted to just pray that God would give us a conviction as a church about these things. That we would have a conviction that, that the hope of the second coming would be a driving force for how we live this life. You know, we think about all the ways God's moved in great past times of revival where people turn in repentance 
where they turn from their sin. That's always one of the key things to revival is that, that there is a, a seeking of the Lord and a, a turning from sin and turning in faith to Jesus. But one of the other things that happens during revival times is this, is that there is an expectation that the coming of the Lord is near. And we want to be a people that have that same conviction. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we just come before you and um, we're very thankful for your words, Lord. We're very thankful this morning that you brought us in on the family secret. These things, though they're mysterious, they're, they're not a hidden secret from us, Lord. It's an open mystery, an open secret in which you invite us into as your people to consider the things and the, the future that's ahead of us. And Lord, we just thank you for Bible prophecy. We thank you, Lord, that your desire is not that we would be scared, but that we would be prepared. And Lord, we want to be a prepared people. You said that you're going to prepare a place for us. And the people that you come back for are people that are prepared for your coming. And so, God, we want to be a prepared people. I pray this morning, Lord, I just ask for our church, God, that we would have a conviction about your coming for us. That we would have a conviction so that it drives our life, Lord, for the purposes of your kingdom. God, we thank you for the conviction of the cross that you've put in our lives. Lord, we believe in the work of the cross. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we believe in your death and your burial and your resurrection and your ascension into heaven. Jesus, we believe that when we turn from sin in repentance and turn in faith to you, that you save us, that we're born again, that we're made new creations. Lord, we thank you for the work of salvation. God, we pray that conviction would drive our lives. But Lord, we pray for a second conviction, that we would also be convicted, Lord, a strong belief in the truth of your coming again, and that we would live with that awareness, that we would live with that hope, that it would give us great joy to serve you in these days. Lord, we thank you that David served your purpose in his generation, and then you took him home. We pray, God, that we would be a people who serve your purpose for us in our generation until you come again. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.